Mark chapter 8, if you would turn there in your Bibles. And just to give clarity, um, Sherry wanted to thank everyone for praying for her when she was so sick. She has no interest at all in meeting with you after. <laughs> I was thinking, Jim, you're putting her on the spot. No, she was just so grateful for your prayers while she was sick. She was very, uh, very, very sick. And so we are so thankful that she is with us today. Her and her family, they're up from um, Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix, Arizona for uh, Josiah's graduation. And so what a blessing that is. All right. Would you stand with me? We're going to. Read our text together, beginning in verse 31, Mark chapter 8. It says, And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he turned, that's Jesus again, turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after, or follow me, excuse me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Father, we pray as we always do. We, we have your word. It's your word. We know that it was inspired. The writers were men, but they were inspired by you, your spirit, to pin these things. And we are, if we placed our faith in you, we are your children, which means we have that same spirit, your spirit, Lord, dwelling within us, the same spirit you tell us in your word will teach us and remind us and do so many other things. And so we pray, Lord, now by your spirit and your word that you would teach us, give us insight and understanding, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. I thought that uh, based upon the last service that I would get up and say, that today's message is going to be heavy, but if you attend the church, you might argue and say, it's always heavy. <laughs> and in one sense, it is if we're taking the word of God seriously, heavy. It, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's where I'm being crushed under the weight of it, but it's weighty. It, it's something that, that, that has weight to it. These aren't just words that we read on a, on a you know, page of a book, but but these are the words of our Lord. And if you have the red letter edition, you know, you just kind of look down. Isn't that wonderful in the New Testament? You look down in the gospel accounts, you look at all the red letters, and you say these are the recorded words of Jesus that Jesus spoke. Of course, not all the words that he spoke, but the ones that are recorded. If you are with us last week, you know that 
we kind of went into this week's teaching. In fact, last week we saw how Peter, when Jesus asked the disciples, he didn't ask just Peter, but he asked all of the disciples, who do men say that I am? And it's interesting to know where he said that. He said that near Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is where the waters that feed the Jordan River come out of the ground. And um, the waters come from Mount Hermon, and they go underground, and then they come out of the ground there at uh, Caesarea Philippi. And that particular location was a location where many false gods were worshipped. Baal was worshipped there. Uh, Pan, the goat man god, was worshipped there. And so a lot of perversions, a lot of strange things uh, were worshipped there. And there it was that Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And so they began to answer, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, but others say that you're Elijah, and still others say that you're maybe one of the prophets, one of the Old Testament prophets, you've come back and uh, you're here. And then he asked them the question that I think was really important to him, and it was in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And it's important that if we're followers of Jesus, that we've got this down, right? I mean, if, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you don't know who he is, and sadly, there's a lot of Christians that really don't know who he is because they're not in the word, they're not studying the word, they don't believe the word, maybe they hear the word and they discard the word because it just doesn't fit into their world view. So Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? And of course, Peter is the one who pipes up and he says, you are the Christ. So the Christ, it's not Jesus Christ, first name, last name. It's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for and you're here. And so, of course, you know, the Lord has something wonderful to say to Peter, you know, and we don't see it here in Mark's gospel, but we see it in some of the other gospel accounts. And Peter was the man of the hour, or maybe the man of a few minutes. Because as the account goes on, we see that Jesus, in verse 31, that he began to teach them. So he's teaching specifically his disciples, and as he's teaching them, it's almost as if he's saying, okay, now that you've figured out my true identity... Now you need to understand my true mission. So this is my true mission. And he says to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And the scripture tells us that he spoke these things openly. So there's nothing concealed here. He's not speaking in you know, in riddles or rhymes or anything like that. He's just simply saying it as it is. You're right, I am the Christ, but I need you to know this is my mission. I've come to die. And, of course, they get the information and they can't handle it because this is not something they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear something like, I've come, I'm going to set up my kingdom. Uh, well, where, where's James and John? I promised your mother that you guys would sit one at my right, one at my left, you know. Everything's going to be smooth sailing from this point on. No, that's not what he said, because that was not his mission. His mission was that he must, 
And you say, must? Why must he die? And the quick answer, the easy answer, the biblical answer is sin. Why must he die? Sin. A follow-up question might be, whose sins? He has to die for whose sins? And of course, if you're a believer, if you place your faith in Christ, you know the answer to that question as well, our sins. Let me read a scripture that declares this. It's not in the New Testament. It's actually in the Old Testament. So it's prophesying about the mission of Jesus. And you all know it, those of you that are students of the scripture. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, our sins, transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so Jesus, he must suffer these things and I wonder if they even heard the last part. And after three days, rise again. Because you'd think that would kind of settle things in their heart. They'd say, well, okay, well, whatever, we don't understand this, but as long as after three days you're going to rise again, you're going to be with us, everything's going to be okay. But it seems that they could not, they would not accept it. It was just too much for them to accept. We know from the gospel accounts that Jesus spoke these words very clearly at least three times. And each time, they, they'd hear it, and they just want to get it. It was like it went in one ear and out the other ear. I think sometimes we do that as humans. You know, we hear something, it's too hard for us to hear. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to accept it. And so we just kind of push it aside. Well, according to Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, when, when Peter began to rebuke Jesus for saying this. So Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. This is my mission. And of course, we see in our text, we just read it a moment ago, that, that Peter began to rebuke him. And according to Matthew's go uh, uh, gospel account, we're told that Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord. Isn't that ironic? Lord, <laughs> far be it from you, Lord, the master, the one in charge, far be it from you, this shall not happen to you. And I think to give Peter the benefit of the doubt, I think that Peter most likely spoke these words because he loved Jesus, don't you? I mean, it would be a hard thing to hear these things. Oh, no, I don't want to accept it. I don't want to believe this. I don't want to believe that these horrible things are going to happen to you. It's interesting how Jesus commends Peter in one moment and then has to rebuke Peter, I mean, just a few moments later. You know, I've noticed, and I've noticed it for a number of decades now, there's a change that takes place in the church. And there's been a change, and a very noticeable change that I've seen in the church is, well, it would go something like this. At all cost, keep it positive. Keep it positive at all cost. 
I was sharing with the first service that I was thinking uh, earlier in the morning how uh, I remember, you know, young Christian, you go to church, and it was just kind of a format, you know, we would we would worship in song, of course, and there would be some prayers prayed, and then the pastor would get up, and usually the pastor would say something that, you know, he didn't always deliver on, but he would usually say something like, you guys are going to be blessed, I got a great message for you today. I would never start a message, because, you know what, I've done this for too long, and I, I know some will be blessed, and some will be angry. I mean, it's just the way it is because, you know, it's the word of God and it goes out and it, it hits people in different ways. And then usually the pastor would tell a joke and it would always be some dad joke, you know, and it would be <laughs> and everyone kind of have that nervous laugh, you know, and then he would say, open your Bibles, let's get into the word. And I always wondered, even as a young Christian, why the joke? <laughs> why, why do we need the joke, you know? I mean, if it's so heavy, maybe we need the joke at the end, not at the beginning. But that was just kind of the format, you know? And I, I think that's when we started seeing a change. At all costs, keep it positive. I know as a pastor, as a pastor teacher, it's interesting how um, pastors fall in and out of favor with people. If I'm saying what people want to hear uh, or they're in agreement with, oh, man, you like me. But when I say things that you don't like, you shut me off. And not just me, but that's true of you know, anyone that's speaking. We just kind of, you know, we're like fair weather friends, you know, as long as you're saying what I want to say. You know, we, we go through the whole COVID thing, and, and I am because I am the way I am. Very outspoken about the COVID stuff. I'm just kind of saying it like it is. And bum, bum, bum. You don't like it, you, you, you know, and we had some folks leave. But we saw so many more people coming to the church. And I would have people say to me afterwards, you should send how they might tie into Bible prophecy and all. But, you know, we kind of uh, predicted what would happen, kind of like 9-11, you know, 9-11. Churches are full because we're under attack. We better get serious. We better get right with God, you know. COVID, we're under attack. We better get right with God. But, you know, things change. <laughs> and our interest and our enthusiasm changes as well. And people just kind of move on. I wonder, when I look at this, when I look at Peter being rebuked, or first of all, rebuking Jesus, and then being rebuked by Jesus, I think of Peter's attitude. Maybe his attitude was something like, come on, Jesus. Don't be a downer, you know. Keep it positive, you know. If things are going so well, Jesus, look at all these people that are flocking around you. Don't talk like that. You're going to turn people away. If you talk like that, sadly, I'm not one of them, but sadly, there are a lot of pastors that are pastoring churches where they are, in essence, Jesus. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Actually, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 33, it says, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You know, 
Jesus, you're always stumbling people. You know, Jesus has something to say to people. You offend me. Peter, you offend me. You're a stumbling block to me. And the verse goes on and says, For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, or the Lord, could have said to Peter very easily, he could have said, you know, Peter, you don't have a biblical worldview. Do you know what a biblical worldview is? A biblical worldview is that you see things as a Christian, you believe what the Bible says. Now, every believer should be someone, should be a person who has a biblical worldview, but apparently that's not the way it is. In fact, a few Wednesdays ago, I was sharing with the group that showed up on Wednesday night for our midweek study, a survey, a survey of a thousand pastors, and the survey was taken of a thousand pastors to see if they had a biblical worldview. So a thousand pastors, and they would ask questions about morality, you know, sin, abortion, sexuality, things like that. And so they wanted the pastors or, you know, church ministry folks to answer the questions. And this is what they concluded after the survey. They concluded that 38% of the thousand, 38% did not have a biblical worldview. These are, these are Christian leaders in Christian churches. 38% did not have a biblical worldview. Then they broke it down into categories and some of these categories are going to be foreign to us because our church is a small church and we don't function the way the survey is laid out. But it says that only 41% of senior pastors have a biblical worldview, according to their survey. Listen to this. Only 28% of assistant, assisting pastors have a biblical worldview. Listen to this. Only 13% of teaching pastors have a biblical worldview. Larger churches, you have a senior pastor, you have a teaching pastor, you have a pastor that's on staff to do the teaching. I can't imagine being a, to me, being a pastor without being able to teach, forget it. I mean, the, the teaching is the, you know, it's the, uh, it's the Sunday. It's the, it's the, you know, cherry on top. It's, it's the joy to be able to communicate God's word. The other can be a drag without <laughs> the word of God. Look at this. Only 12% of those surveyed, only 12% of children's ministry have a biblical worldview. Could you imagine if the teaching pastor of the church that you're attending only had, there was only 13% who had a biblical worldview, and yet they're teaching the word of God? How do you teach the word of God without believing that the word is the word of God? It just doesn't make sense. And yet we see it happening all the time. Only 4% of executive pastors, you might say, well, what is that? Big churches, executive pastors are kind of the managers over all the ministry people. So could you imagine the guy that's in charge of all the people that serve in the church, those surveyed only 4% of the executive pastors had a biblical worldview. Now you can sit back and say, man, I'm glad I'm not in church leadership. What a mess. Here's another survey. Another survey said that only 9% of those who identify as born again Christians, 
I always made a distinction. When I got saved, I, I didn't say, I'm a Christian. I said, I'm a born-again Christian based off of John chapter 3. I'm born again. But it says only 9% of those surveyed uh, who identify as born again have a biblical worldview. And then only 7% of those who identify as Protestants have a biblical worldview. At the first service, after the worship, Nehemiah, as he was praying, he prayed something, and he said, um, as he was praying, he says, we are living in the dark ages spiritually. And so I just kind of sprung off of that in the teaching at the last service, and I was thinking, we are in the dark ages spiritually speaking. I was talking to Nate between services, and we were talking about the Dark Ages. You know, you hear about the Dark Ages. Why were the Dark Ages the Dark Ages? The Dark Ages were the Dark Ages because the Bible was chained to the pulpit. It was not accessible to the people. And so you say, well, that, that's sad, you know. That's sad that the, the clergy kept the word of God away from the common man. It is sad. It's tragic. And it led to spiritual darkness, i.e. the dark ages and all that came with that. But our Bibles aren't chained to pulpits. See, we have no excuse at all not to know the Bible, to read the Bible, to believe the Bible, to apply the Bible. We have so many translations of the Bible. I sent one of my Bibles away to get uh, recovered. So I sent it uh, back to Tennessee, and uh, the fellow uh, received my Bible, and uh, he sent me an email, and he said, uh, Daniel, I received your Bible today. I'm so sorry. I should have asked you beforehand. I didn't realize that the Bible you wanted me to bind is not a King James Bible. It's a new King James Bible. I didn't realize it wasn't a King James Bible. Knowing what I know... <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, brother. Knowing what I know in good conscience, I cannot bind a Bible that's not a King James Bible. And then he sent me a video from Chick Productions. Younger people, you're probably thinking, Chick Productions? What is that? Look it up. You know, I'm thinking, man, you should have you gone to a better source for the King James only you know, whole argument type of thing. The fact of the matter is, is that we, as English-speaking people, we have so many of Bibles available to us. Some Bibles stay away from, honestly. Message Bible is not a translation. Passion Bible is not a translation. Passion Bible is put together by one man, not a, not a, a group of, of scholars. Stay away from those Bibles. But we have... The New American Standard, word for word. It's a little hard to read because it's word for word. And we have that translation available to us. You have the New King James. It takes away the these and the thous and some of the old words that we just don't use any longer. You have the kind of thought for thought Bibles, you know, in the NIV. You have to be careful because some of these Bibles will delete portions of Scripture without telling you. But if you have a good Bible... 
you know, then it will tell you why this is deleted or it will keep it in the Bible and say, this is not found in some of the manuscripts. So it's letting you know what's going on. And again, that's a very rare time. The point is, is that we have the word of God. It's available for each one of us. There's no reason why we should be living in the dark ages, spiritually speaking. There's no reason. I wonder if Jesus would say to this generation of professing Christians, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. We've watched it, guys. I've watched it in the four plus decades that I've been walking and serving Jesus. I've watched. I've watched the birth of something that did not exist. I've watched the birth of the seeker-sensitive churches. Seeker-sensitive churches are based upon pastors and and, uh, workers going out into their communities, asking people if they go to church, if they say no, asking them why they don't go to church, asking them what they would like to experience in church, what would turn them off from church, what would bring them back to church, And in essence, they were asking non-believers, people without the indwelling spirit of God, to give them a picture of their ideal churches, and then they created those churches. And you have the seeker-sensitive churches. And we watched them. We watched churches like Willow Creek. Boy, I remember when that was in the news all the time. Willow Creek, this church, man, they're taking a different approach. They're using drama They're they're using other ways to attract people. And um, it grew and it expanded and they kept building bigger and bigger facilities. Willow Creek is dying right now. It's dying because the seeker-sensitive pastor was a little too seeker-sensitive toward women in the church. And so the church is dying The church would be able to survive the unfaithful pastor if the church was built upon the word of God because the word of God does not change. But if the the church is built upon a a style or a man or a, you know, whatever it might be, an approach, it will fail. We're watching Hillsong do the same thing. Hillsong. Hillsong Church is known for their great worship music, you know. I mean, you talk about dynamic Uh, worship music and yet we're watching we're watching it implode we're watching Hillsong pastors that are now distant themselves they say I love Hillsong I love our time with Hillsong but for the sake of our local fellowship we have to we have to disassociate ourselves from them now we're watching this happen we're watching this happen with the Southern Baptist churches Southern Baptist churches, many of them that were taking a seeker-sensitive approach because it works. Listen, if it works, how could it be wrong? It works. Many years, many decades, we'd go to pastor's conferences and Pastor Chuck would tell the pastors, he would tell us Calvary Chapel pastors, he says, you want to build a church, you want to build it fast, seeker-sensitive is the way to go. But the growth will be quick, but shallow, and it will not last. You want to build a church, you want to plant a church, build a church on something that will remain, will last, 
Build it upon the word of God. It might not, you might not see the people coming in as quickly, but the ones that are there, if they're being fed by the word of God, if they're applying the word of God to their life, they will grow, and the growth will be deep and wide. It's sad, the generation that we live in. You know, Jesus tells us many things in the scripture. The, you know, the spirit of God reveals many things. He reveals things concerning the future. We look at the world in which we live in. It's not just dark, spiritually speaking. It's dark in every other way. I mean, you think of the things that are happening in the world. I almost don't even recognize the world that we live in. I don't recognize the country that I live in. And I was born in this country, like all of you probably were born in this country. And you look around and you say, I don't recognize it. What's going on here? But I think of how Jesus, you know, the Bible, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, through the, through the apostles or the prophets or whoever it might be, they reveal the future before it comes so that when it comes, we may know that he is God. Because there's only one that can tell us the future before it comes to pass. I think of the fact that the Lord tells us things to come, and yet there are many professing Christians that are quick to say, those things will never come. I reject those things. Those things are too hard to hear, therefore they're nonsense to me. Let me give you an example. We have the book of Revelation. You know, there are so many different approaches to the book of Revelation that's mind-blowing. There is the preterist approach. You know, all of these things were historical, and they happened back you know, shortly after the time of Christ and all of these things. And you read the book of Revelation, and if you're a sincere reader of the book, you say, how in the world could they say that these things have already happened? They haven't happened. There are some who say, we're living in the thousand-year reign of Christ. We've got ripped off. If this is a thousand-year reign of Christ, and Satan has been bound for a thousand years, this is it? Listen. We lived in Grass Valley, and our, you know we used to go hiking all the time and everything. And in Grass Valley, and that's why I love Whidbey Island so much, but in Grass Valley, we had rattlesnakes all over the place. Everywhere we lived, we had rattlesnakes. When I grew up in San Diego, we lived on the edge of town. We had rattlesnakes in our front yard. Rattlesnakes, rattlesnakes, rattlesnakes. So rattlesnakes, you know, kids, they don't understand. That's a rattlesnake. Don't touch that one. You could touch that one, a rosy boa, or a king snake, or this, that, or the other. You know, it takes time for them to figure it out, you know. But, um, but you would, you'd be on your guard. I don't know why I brought up rattlesnakes. I just had kingdom. Oh, yes, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. I need that. My kids, my grandkids, 14, 15 on the way, um, that they're not putting their hands in vipers' dens. We wouldn't let them do that. Why? That would be irresponsible. They would be bitten, and they might die. But during the thousand-year reign of Christ, you know, are any of us surprised when old people die? I mean, honestly, we shouldn't be. I mean, the older I get, you know, I hear someone, I, I always ask, how old were they? And I was like, man, long life, that's great. You know, I kind of come from a family where we kind of die off quickly, the men, you know. I, I've surpassed a lot of the men that <laughs> from my family. They, of course, abuse their bodies horribly, and 
drink themselves to death. But Jesus tells us of things. The scriptures tell us of things. Revelation chapter 6, we have the opening of the seven seals. The seventh seal is the opening of the next set of judgments. Jesus is opening the seals. No one's worthy to open the seals. But one, Jesus, he comes forth. Don't weep, John, don't weep. I've got this. He opens the seal, and we have these four horsemen. We call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us that. They, they just simply tell us of the horseman. You've got the first horseman. He comes out. He's on a white horse. People who are not familiar with the scriptures, they assume that this is Jesus because he's on a white horse. Um, no, not Jesus. Why? Because he was given a crown. Jesus is not given crowns. He has crowns, diadems, crown upon crown upon crown. This rider on the white horse is given a crown, and he goes out to conquer and he has a weapon, but he doesn't have any bullets, if you will. He doesn't have any arrows. And he goes out to conquer. This writer is the Antichrist in his new world peace agenda. We're watching it at Davos and all of these things that are happening right now. Things People who are not elected, elected officials are making decisions for the world. They have a global plan for the world. Say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, if I hear another person say to me, the new world order, that's a conspiracy theory. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab them and force them to watch television because they're all talking about the new world, you know, order more than the churches. But you have the rider on the white horse. And he will have this, this veneer, you know, the, of, of, of peace and harmony. And he's going to be, you know, the answer to all the questions and all the woes of the world. But, of course, that veneer will be removed. And he'll do whatever it takes to dominate the world. And according to the scriptures, he will persecute and put to death all who oppose him. Second seal opens. You have another rider on a horse. This time it's a red horse. The Antichrist barely gets his peace agenda off the ground when Jesus breaks the second seal and it says and takes peace from the earth that people should kill one another. You say, well, that's happening now. Yes, but wait until the seal is broken. It's going to be absolutely horrific. The point is, is that there's no hope of world peace without the Prince of Peace. When the Prince of Peace comes, Revelation chapter 19, then there will be peace on the earth only because he's the only one who's able to bring it. Third seal, third horse, black horse. This represents famine. How do we know? Read the text and you'll see that it speaks of famine. I thought this was interesting. Just last week, just last week, according to an analysis, Sarah Meeker, she's not a Christian. This is not coming from a Christian perspective. She's coming from a global perspective, and she was stating that the nations of the world are lying to us about the supply of food in the world. And her findings, she said, quote, that we have just 10 weeks of wheat supplies left in storage, 10 weeks According to her research, we know that there has been food riots around the world. Food prices have doubled, even in the United States, in a very short period of time. Uh, prices have gone up 400% in places like 
Iran and Peru and 